0: The stretch run for the Pacers is officially here. They go very young against the Mavericks, a very young starting lineup, and they get smoked by Dallas. Their defense, crummy. Their offense, crummy. Benedict Matherin, awesome. We'll talk about all that. And standings watch for the Pacers down the stretch of this season, all coming on today's Locked On Pacers podcast. You are Locked On Pacers, your daily Indiana Pacers podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day. Welcome in to another edition of the Locked On Pacers podcast, where we, of course, talk about the Indiana Pacers, as always. My name's Tony East. I cover the team for Forbes and SI, and today, diving in to Pacers Mavs, where... Things got ugly for the Pacers, kind of expectedly so, given who was available. But it was surprising who was and wasn't available for the Pacers. We'll break it all down in terms of the sitting and playing of players. Sitting might be the wrong word. We'll see. Uh, Plus, Benedict Matherin, big bounce back game for him. He's been giving more, as Rick Carlisle calls it, responsibilities. That's a great word to describe it. talk about that a little bit. We'll close with standings. Watch big time for the Pacers right now. They're almost eliminated from the plan, but not quite. But the inverse standings got a lot better for them this week. We'll talk about all that to close today's show. We start in gamebridge Pacers return home from a road trip. They're playing the Mavs. The Mavs are in disarray. Luka Doncic got a tech and might not play in this game, except in the end, Luka did play, and a lot of the Mavs, excuse me, the Pacers stars didn't. Mavs blow the doors off the Pacers. That is kind of the backseat story of the game is the actual game and score. We'll talk about it. Uh, they won by 23 points. All the surprises for the Pacers rolled in before the game even started. 11.30 a.m., an injury report comes out. Buddy Heald, illness, non-COVID illness, he's not playing. Buddy Heald's first missed game for the Pacers at all, right? He came here in the trade last February, had played in 101 straight for the Pacers, only not starting the last two. Non-COVID illness didn't even, uh, was told at least, I believe, Rick Carlisle said before the game, don't even, couldn't even come like to the game, to the arena, whatever. Didn't want to get anybody else sick. I, I assume if it's that bad, he'll miss maybe another game. Uh, so that's brutal for Buddy Hill. Long streak. He loves playing every game. Takes pride in it. He's played all 82 before, all 73 or all 72 in the COVID years, whatever it was. Takes a lot of pride in that. And the Pacers benefit from his spacing and shooting in certain groups. And he's better with Tyrese Halliburton than without. And they didn't have him. So that's a big hit for the team, obviously. They'll have to adjust. George Hill's probably going to have to play. But they can make do. Ah, uh, but then it turns out that two guys listed on the injury report for injury management: Miles Turner, uh, left ankle injury management and back soreness injury management, and Tyrese Halliburton, right ankle sprain injury management. Both were not also going to play in this game. We learned that in the pregame presser by Rick Carlisle. Both, so both, uh, a lot of revealing going on here. Pacers being very cautious with injuries, given their standing spot in the standings, given where their season is now. That's the right move, hundred percent, right. The plan, no longer a thing that is is plausible to expect. That's completely out of their hands. They could play as well as reasonably expected and go whatever four and two, or four and three, or five and two, even in their last couple of games, and still not even make it, right? The Bulls' most projection models had that at thirty nine or forty, right? The Pacers would have to basically go undefeated. That's um, unreasonable, right? Either way. No Halliburton, no Turner. So that meant over the course of a few hours, it was determined the Pacers would not have their three highest scores from this season for this game in Halliburton, Heald, and Turner. First time they've ever not had Heald. And so obviously the first time they've ever not had all three of those guys. So then my early morning thought of, huh, George Hill might have to play became Oh, my God, they're going to be playing <laughs> every guard they possibly have as many minutes as they can. Travel and Queens, not even possible to play because he's still with the G League team because they made the playoffs over the weekend. They have no guard depth. They, they have very little guard depth. They're going to have to go young. And no Miles Turner means that on top of that, they're also going to have to start a bunch of young dudes. So the Pacers oldest starter in this game was Jordan Wara at 24 years old. They just got him at the trade deadline. Their only opening night starter that started this game is Jalen Smith, (laughs) the upset of the century that that would ever even happen again, given what his role has been and his promised starting spot. So the result doesn't matter, right? The result does not matter for the Pacers in this game. This game was about more than that. That was kind of the stuff I was asking Rick Carlisle today. What have you thought of your new lineups? What are you hoping to see from these groups? What have you thought of the way XYZ Young Guy has played? Because that's what's more interesting to me at this stage of the season and at the beginning of this game this this younger group the starting five I should have probably just said it was Nembard, Matherin, Neesmith, Wara, and Smith so those guys have all played together generally but still a new group on the whole and so they had to kind of feel each other and they started pretty well right Nembard was doing some stuff at the beginning Wara was hitting some shots early Smith looked effective Matherin started strong they were only down two early in the game right I thought that maybe this group could could do this. The Mavs in total disarray. They're lucky to even have Luka for this game. He he had a tech get rescinded, so he could even play. The bench did okay in the first quarter. Isaiah Jackson had a billion offensive rebounds. I thought it was possible for this group to survive. Right? I I, I didn't think that anyone could defend in a Mavs Pacers game, but I thought this Pacers group could score enough to keep themselves in the game. That turned out to be completely not the case. The bench did not do anything well offensively in the second frame, and the Pacers offense sputtered totally for the rest of the outing in a kind of a, a similar way that they have in recent games where their first quarter is one of their best quarters. They did pick it up in the fourth in this one, but 27 in the second quarter, twenty. 20 in the second quarter, 27 in the third quarter for the Pacers. They had 74 through three quarters. They were on pace for less than 100. This group just couldn't quite score with the guys they had. And that when you don't have Haliburton, that's one thing. When you have Haliburton and healed, all of a sudden your guard rotation is a lot of guys who uh, struggle with. You know the, the thing I've always said with Haliburton is he can shoot and create. They don't have anyone else who can do both. But now they have a bunch of guys who can't shoot at all in their guard rotation. Matherin is okay as a shooter, TJ McConnell it has to be set up. He hit his only three in this game. Uh George Hill didn't take any in this game. Andrew Nembhard has been okay as a shooter right. They lose their two best shooters as well as a good creator. So now their guard rotation, they have some guys who can kind of create, right? Matherin can create for himself. We'll talk about him in the second segment. He was good. He was a plus minus plus in this game in 38 minutes and they lost by 23 points like he was legitimately good in this game tj mcconnell did some okay stuff right he had 15 and 7 and shot over 50 percent like they got decent contributions from their guards in this game Nembar shot 50 percent had 17 and 5 like that's a good outing but they don't have enough skills to be defended in a way that Requires a defense to be on their toes, right? It's generally kind of easy for them to expect a certain thing, whether that's an attack from a certain guy or a shot from some guy or just an an easier, obvious pass. In a way that made it so, yeah, the Pacers' guards can be effective uh, in in, individually. Like nembar was a plus five; it doesn't matter. Single game plus minus when he was by twenty three doesn't really matter. But they had the guards to to do individual stuff. But from a team perspective, it's just so linear and obvious what was going to happen. That the Pacers' offense could never be good enough. So even though Wara was doing some okay stuff, and Jalen Smith had 11 points, and Isaiah Jackson was a monster on the offensive glass, double double almost for Isaiah Jackson, 12 rebounds, nine of them on the offensive end. He had over double the Mavs' offensive rebounds by himself. The Pacers just couldn't score in this game. So the takeaway from from this game from the Pacers is like they, you know, it it seems dumb to say they can't score without their top three scorers but it's just I think the takeaway is they kind of need and I've talked about this you know someone who can create and shoot a little bit with this group or someone to develop those skills simultaneously Matherin can create for himself can he create for others or become a shooting threat one or the other makes him so potent can McConnell be coming off the dribble threat in a way that makes him makes teams actually guard him more consistently or can Nembard become that George Hill he's old enough that his skills are what they are he was better decade ago and they and so they have the young guys with the ability to make those leaps but in this game it was very clear in the absence of their two best shooters and their best creator just how much their guards need in terms of that balance of creation and shooting in a way that was really tough to overcome for the Pacers only 20 assists for the Pacers in this game I think that's probably the best way to show the lack of those two combinations of skills they had they only made eight threes and they only had 20 assists. Two stats that they normally do pretty well in the Mavs, for example, had 29 assists and made 18 threes, right? And they ran through the Pacers. So without those guards, obviously the big takeaway is Pacers looking younger, getting their young guys out there, looking to develop. Like, that's smart. That's good, given where they are in the standings. The smaller takeaway is those guards that were playing... You know, they don't have the right combination of skills to raise the floor of the Pacers offense in a way that we've seen all season where when Hilton Halliburton or one or the other are out there, the Pacers can just have at least an average offense most of the time. Not the case in this game. Mavs run away with it. They win by 23, but Benedict Matherin, huge bounce back, totally expected. That's what he's done all season. But given how the starting switch has gone for him. It was kind of a TBD. I was curious how he would look in this game. The answer was very good, and that I think is meaningful, and I want to talk about it in the second segment today. Before we do that, though, let me talk to you guys about FanDuel, the NCAA tournament up and running. The Final Four is coming. There's no better place to get in on the action than FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook, because right now FanDuel is giving new customers a no sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's one. $1000 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Just go to fanduel.com/lockdown and sign up today to claim your no sweat first bet. Then you can wager on everything from the money line to point spreads to which team will be cutting down the net all on an app that's safe, secure and super easy to use. So don't miss your shot on a no sweat first bet up to $1000 when you join FanDuel today. Just go to fanduel.com/lockdown to sign up make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NBA that's fanduel.com/lockdown. Thank you, as always, for making Lockdown Pacers your first listen today and every single day. I'm kind of bummed. There could have been a lot of awesome storylines to recommend for your second listen today, including Lockdown Sixers. If Embiid had crushed Jokic in the MVP battle, he didn't end up playing. Jokic was awesome and had a triple-double, so maybe Lockdown Nuggets is the way to go as Jokic tries to get back in the MVP race. Or Lockdown Kings could have been a great recommendation today. Had the Sacramento Kings clinched their first playoff berth in 16 years, 17 years, That didn't end up happening. They had got it delayed till likely later this week. So I'll just say Locked On Mavs. The Pacers opponent for the night, they were in some disarray. Luca ends up playing and the Mavs stomp the Indiana Pacers in this game. Are they stabilizing? Locked On Mavs has more for you. Let's talk about Benedict Matherin. Over the weekend, not the best he's played. I don't think anyone thought so. I don't think he thought so. And there was some lineup tinkering going on. And uh, look, this isn't about talking about the early season storylines too much, but early in the season when Matherin wasn't starting, a lot of fans would ask why not and what makes sense and why this, this is weird. And a lot of the explanation that I tried to provide, and that was, you know, talked about by members of the Pacers and all that was like, it didn't make sense for him because he can't get productive reps. And over the weekend, when he plays with Halbert the team does well, they fit together, they provide a one-two punch, but sometimes when they're out there together, it's hard for Matherin to get the touches a lot because Halbert has the ball more. And so over the weekend, four shots for Matherin against Boston and four shots against Atlanta. Now he only had five against Toronto and Halbert didn't play in that game. But either way, it's a little harder for him to get involved playing with Halliburton. He still is effective and good. Those two games were an outlier on the low side, but you get the picture. In this game, no Halliburton. He can have the ball way more. Nembard is more distributor-focused. I don't know if that's the right word. It's hard to explain the difference. The threat of Nembard's shot is lower, so it feels like he's more distributor-focused, even though Halliburton's a much better passer. Either way. Matherin getting more chances in this game to attack and to be himself, and he bounced back in a major way. And that was the story of his season for so long this year, right? He'd have his first down game of the year, his first time, you know, shooting a little poorly, and he follows it up with a 32 point game shooting 50%. Or he got his first time in single digits when he had eight against the Pelicans, he had 30 the next game, then he had nine against the Clippers, then he had 23 the next game, then he had nine against Miami, and at 24, the next game, you get the gist. It took two months. It took until the at-Boston-at-Miami duo for him to go under 10 points twice in a row, right? He always was bouncing back from his crummy games, so the two in a row that were rough this weekend was unusual for his season, and that is why here we are again. Benedict Matherin bounces back and shows how good he can be at his best 26 points against the Mavs in this game. They struggled to keep him out of the paint, and get to his spots it'd be Benedict Matherin. Seven free throw attempts. Nine for 19 from the field, but that sells him short because he missed six threes. He was seven for 11 from twos when he was attacking. He was awesome. Tw- again, 26 points, four rebounds, two assists, one steal, one block. And this is amazing. <laughs> this is just ridiculous. Plus two. They won his minutes. He played over 38 minutes, and they won them by two. That means in the under eight minutes that Benedict Matherin was not on the court in this game, the Pacers lost them by 25 points. <laughs> he was great in this game, and he's getting a little bit better at on-ball defense, but plus-minus is stupid in this game. Like, it's ridiculous. Andrew Nembhard played 36 minutes. Aaron Nismith played 34. Nembhard was a plus-five. Nismith was a minus 35. <laughs> so that means in the small amount of time they didn't overlap, Nismith's solo minutes just went horrible atrocious awful it it was not a good game for plus minus to be indicative of what happened either way Matherin himself was good and he bounced back again like he continues to do but this is the first time he's done it as a starter and it's not that much different but he talked about today I asked him this question on the stand like how much does this change things and you know when you're on the bench a lot of players have said like you can feel I've always heard them say like you can feel out the game you can see what's happening and know where your spots are Matherin specifically said something that just like it clicked in my head why that's specifically good for him and guards in general like he said you two the bigs are defending right and so you know Doug McDermott would always say that coming off the bench allowed him to feel the game and I was like you know Doug McDermott like no matter what the coverage is like his skill set is still the same (laughs) you know the things he's going to try to do are the same Matherin though is a guy that, you know, if the big, if the opposing team is blitzing or if they're dropping or if they're trapping or, you know, whatever their pick and roll coverage is being different, would would affect and change how he would attack, right? Coming around screens. And he was really good for a while. He still is, but it's become less of a thing like getting free off ball and attacking. But so seeing how the big man is going to defend him in two man actions is very valuable. And knowing that before he comes in the game was important for him. And I think that allowed him to be good sometimes or be, be more effective when he came off the bench. And so he said part of the adjustment to being a starter is that, right? You got to be ready right away. You don't know what the coverage is. You got to figure it out as you go, but still be effective. And that's a change. It's not harder. He, he makes it very clear. It's not more difficult. It's just different. And so then I think this is the first time as a starter that he's had to really kind of figure out what to do and how to be impactful how to recover and so he did a very good job of that in the game I thought that was extremely significant as they're trying to figure out you know I, I bet for the rest of his career Benedict Matherin is a starter basically so learning this stuff now is important the right mentality the right strategy maybe not easing into it but just taking a possession two to feel out what the defense is going to allow you to do is important right getting those skills will be valuable for him and that's why he is starting and why he played 38 minutes in this game and did a very good job. But another part of him starting that I thought was noteworthy is the way Rick Carlisle was talking about it after the game. He was talking about how starting allows Benedict Matherin and any young guy, but a lot of the questions were Matherin, to learn a little bit about, like, responsibility. And that's not, like, personal responsibility. It's, like, habits and, you know, the, developing the things you're working on and defending and, you know... <laughs> the the responsibilities that come with being a starter that include defending another high-level player and attacking a mismatch in a way that isn't the same when you come off the bench I thought that was all very interesting to hear Carlisle talk about that those are some of the things they're working on with Matherin in these situations and that he has to grow in that way right he's come off the bench all season and again that was the right situation for him to grow and attack and They've talked about him going against bench guys all year. But the takeaway is, as a starter, there's more to adjust to than just playing with different guys, right? Obviously, he he's played with some of them all season. But, you know, in the starters over the weekend, he was playing more with Halliburton because that was starting and more with Miles Turner even. Now he's playing more with the different starting five. That's significant. That matters, right? He has to learn where he can attack with those groups. But he also has to learn about the responsibility of being a starter. Like in this game, that meant going against Kyrie or Luca, or being ready and alert on team defense all the time. And he he even said, like, his mea culpa is like, sometimes I get too locked in on my guy. And I agree that he does that. And he's not been the best team defender this year. And also the responsibility of, you know, not uh, keeping the ball moving and flowing. And that was a big thing for him with the second unit recently. And also figuring out how to attack quickly while playing and being engaged, all sorts of things that go into it as well as the mentality shift of just being ready to play right away. It's all very different. I, right? It, it seems so minor, starting versus coming off the bench, but it's not. It's it, it's a big deal. It's a very dramatic shift, and Matherin is learning that on the fly as a young player in this league, and being force-fed those chances late in this season will help him long-term. And I think seeing him have his first kind of bounce-back situation as a starter was significant for me not only to see it and see how he can do it, uh, especially against a good Dallas team that has stars, but also to hear him talk about what he's working through. I learned a lot about the situation for him, a lot about the situation for the Pacers and how they're managing the stuff. And sure, his skills are unique to him and how they'll develop him down the rest of the season. But a lot of the starter stuff and and mental part of it is also relevant for Nembhard and Smith and Wara and everybody who sometimes starts and sometimes doesn't. And so they're learning those skills as well. Again, a very young starting group for the Pacers in this game. Young group in general, right? The veterans were just McConnell and Hill in this game. We'll see who is and isn't available going forward. Maybe Heald can come back from his illness. Maybe Halliburton and Turner play in another game or two before the season ends. We'll see. But I did find all this noteworthy about Benedict Mather, who had a fantastic game. Fantastic game against the Dallas Mavericks on Monday. Let's close with a standings watch i wasn't sure we'd get to do on this week but this is a very important standings watch here figure out where the pacers are in the standings can they still make the plan where are they in the inverse standings their draft pick looks like it's going up how are the other teams that they own their picks doing there's so much to get to on this week's standings watch let's do it thank you as always Making Lockdown Pacers your first listen today and every single day for your second listen. Jump on over to Lockdown NBA to hear the latest and greatest from around the association. And I was one of the hosts on uh, this lovely Tuesday. So, of course, I'm going to self-plug a little bit to keep you inside the Lockdown Podcast Network. Me and David Rimmel broke down the not-MVP battle in Denver, the Kings, the Mavs, the Pacers, the Pelicans, the Timberwolves. We covered a lot of ground on Lockdown NBA. Here on Lockdown Pacers, though standings watch. And this is noteworthy that I'm even doing this. I thought last week there was a chance. Those of you who don't know, uh, once a week in March, I like to look at the standings. Where are the Pacers in terms of who they're chasing and who's chasing them? Where are they in the inverse standings in terms of draft position and lottery position? And where are the teams whose picks they own? Because it's very valuable to see those teams. And now that it's so late in the season, it's also important to know the schedules of those teams that they're chasing or the teams that they care about in the draft. So there's a lot to get to with these I didn't think I would do another standings watch because last week I thought was the last time the Pacers would be close enough to the play in that it mattered. Otherwise it's not standings watch, it's just where the Pacers in the inverse standings. Uh instead the Pacers upset the Raptors, the Bulls lost to Philly and someone else and then they just lost earlier tonight to the Clippers. So we'll start the part because it's still technically relevant. But next week, the final week of the season anyway, standings watch will have nothing to do with the plan because the Bulls did win some games. They beat the Lakers. They beat the Blazers. They won that double overtime thriller against Philly in a different game last week. And so the Pacers have six games to go. They lost today. They're 10, the Pacers are 10 games under five hundred for the first time this season. They've lost three straight. They're 33-43. and 43. The Bulls, after losing to the Clippers are 36 and 39, meaning they are three and a half games ahead of the Pacers with the Pacers having six to go and the bulls having seven to go Pacers own that tiebreaker. So for example, if the bulls lose their very next game, they would be three games ahead of the Pacers with six to go, meaning the Pacers have to do three games better over six games than the bulls to make the plan. Pacers also play the Knicks twice, the Thunder, The Bucs, their schedule's hard. It's not looking likely at all that the Pacers will be catching the Bulls unless the Bulls completely fall apart in their last seven games. But even then, the Pacers could just lose enough that it doesn't matter, right? The Pacers' peak wins right now is 39. The Bulls only need three wins to reach 39 if the Pacers lose once. Like, it's, it's very, very hard to imagine the Pacers making the play in now, given that the Bulls are seven and three in their last 10. Also, it's just looking at the Pacers not looking not going to be a plan team. I'm, I think it's safe to call it now even though it's not mathematically eliminated. What could have happened going into Monday, had the Pacers lost and the Bulls won and then the same results happened again on Wednesday, the Pacers could have been eliminated from the plan as soon as Wednesday. That is now no longer possible. The Pacers will I think at least survive technically until Friday at the earliest. Now they're not going to make the plan, but they, ha- they they now at least will make it through the end of the week, most likely, before being officially eliminated. So Pacers still technically in the play-in hunt, but all but eliminated at this stage of the season. The part that most people are interested in is the inverse standings. And boy, oh boy, did the Pacers have a great week in the inverse standings. Pacers lost three in a row now, so dropped to 33 and 43. Some other stuff happened. The Blazers won a game, finally. They're one and nine in their last ten now, and the Magic won three in a row. So the Pacers at thirty-three and forty-three are half a game away from the five spot in the inverse standings. Portland at five, tied with the Magic. Both of them are thirty-two and forty-three. The Pacers are thirty-three and forty-three. So one Blazers or Magic win is so significant for the Pacers the rest of the season. The Blazers have shut down Dame Lillard, presumably Jeremy Grant as well. The Blazers' schedule we'll get to later. I only say later because there's some overlap of opponents that's certainly noteworthy to discuss here. But the Pacers creeping up the inverse innings. That said, hot on their tail are the Washington Wizards at 33 and 42. And the Jazz have lost four in a row. They're 35 and 40, although probably one Jazz wins enough that the Pacers can't get there. And I've said for three of these in a row, I think the Pacers' draft pick floor is eight. I still think that's the case, that they'll end up somewhere between 5 and 8, and anything is very reasonable in that range. One game separates 5 and 8 in the inverse standings right now. So for the Pacers, that's where they sit in the inverse standings. Every loss and win significant from any of those teams. We'll get to all their schedules in a second. Uh, Also noteworthy, the Celtics have won three in a row. Pacers clinched their draft pick about 10 days ago. The Pacers will get that pick for sure in the draft. Uh, It's currently 29th. And a full game ahead of Denver and three games ahead of Philly, who's lost three in a row, looking certain, a certainty that that pick will be in the last three of the first round, either 28, 29, or 30. It's can the Nuggets catch the Celtics and knock it down to 28? That's the only question to be answered there. Now, the other Pacers' first-round pick is official. The Cavs have made the playoffs. They clinched it Sunday when they beat the Houston Rockets. They're going to the playoffs. Pacers officially getting that pick. And they nailed that trade. I wrote a story on it, so I just was diving in. I mean, the Pacers for Carousel Vert got Andrew Nembard, this first round pick, and a 2027 20, second rounder. I mean, they did a fantastic job in that deal. That Cleveland pick that is for sure going to convey now is currently 25th, uh, tied in that 25, 26 slot with Memphis. And then the Kings are two and a half games away in 24th. So, Pacers fans rooting against the Celtics and Cavs the rest of the season and rooting for the Kings for the Nuggets, for the Sixers, for the Grizzlies to catch them so those picks can be as good as possible. Although if I were a betting man, I would say it's almost certainly that it will end up being just the picks, slots lots that they're in right this second, 25 and 29. Those two are very simple at this stage, but the Pacers c- guaranteed now to have the five picks that was expected of them. Now let's get to the big ones, the interesting stuff, the Rockets, remember for those who don't know, I did a whole show on this at the All-Star break. If you want to go back and listen, the Pacers get the Rockets second round pick if it's 31 or 32, but not if it's 33, which is significant because if the Rockets win out thought 24 wins, they cannot get to the fourth worst record in the league. They can only have a bottom three record. And so the Pacers want to have a bottom two record specifically, right? So The Pacers want the Rockets to finish below the Spurs or Pistons. That's it. Those are the only two teams that are in the mix for Houston. And then if that happens, the Pacers would get four top 32 picks in this draft, They're ring against the Rockets. Now, if it doesn't become the Rockets pick, the Pacers get the better of the Mavericks and Heat second rounders, which the Mavs pick would be 41 now. Their recent skid actually is important for the Pacers. It wouldn't make losing the Rockets pick as bad, but it would still be better to have the better pick, of course. So the Pacers... Heavily invested in the rest of the season for the Rockets, hoping that they lose every single game. Big games coming. There's two games significant on the Rockets' schedule the rest of the way. The Rockets still play the Pistons. That game's on Friday the 31st, so this four days from now. That's a huge game for the Pacers. If the Pistons win that game, that is so helpful for the Pacers because that very much increases the chances the Rockets finish below the Spurs and gives the Pistons a chance to potentially jump The Rockets in the standings. So Pacers were really interested in that game. The other significant game on the Rockets' schedule, they play the Nets, the Lakers, the Nuggets, and then they close with the Hornets, who won't be trying anymore, and the Wizards, who are are already not trying. That's significant because if the Wizards get a win, that's big for the Pacers in the inverse standings because they could potentially move up the inverse standings in that way. So that's kind of a win-win You know, if the Wizards win and the Rockets lose, that's great for the Pacers. Pacers are huge Wizards fans in that game. They're also uh, very much rooting for the Pistons on Friday. So the Rockets schedule is unique in that it could double benefit the Pacers twice in those last six games. The the Rockets-Hornets game will be interesting because the Hornets are kind of not trying as well. So the other teams to look at are the teams right around the Pacers in the inverse standings and their schedule. And that's why I kind of waited to do the Blazers because the Blazers – who are the team right in front of the Pacers in the inverse standings, half a game away. They're one and nine in their last ten games. They play still the Spurs on April sixth. That game is also significant for the Pacers because either the Blazers win and that increases the Pacers chance of moving up the inverse standings or the Spurs win, which increases the likelihood that the Rockets pick finishes in the bottom two. So that's a win-win game for the Pacers. That's on Thursday, April 6th. Uh, The Magic's remaining schedule, which is, again, significant for the Pacers because they are half a game away from the Magic in the inverse standings. If Orlando wins their next game, the Pacers could get up to sixth. The Magic play... The Pistons on April 2nd, the Wizards on March 31st. Those two games, extremely significant, right? If the Wizards beat the the, the Pacers, guaranteed one of the Wizards and Magic to get another win. Very soon, this coming Friday, right? So that will help the Pacers in the inverse standings. And then Magic Pistons is unique because one of those teams has to win that game, which will benefit the Pacers in some way. So that's also significant for the Pacers on the front of their inverse standings chase so they're rooting hard for again the rockets to lose a lot but because there's so much overlap things are going to work out for them in some way the question is what is the best way well that is for the rockets to finish with the bottom two pick and the pacers to get the highest pick possible the wizards play the rockets again that's a significant game significant game and the magic and that is the big overlap so lots of important games for the pacers to keep an eye on down the stretch of the season every spurs game is huge Birds could just pull off one upset. Things would look great for the Pacers in the inverse standings. Spurs still play the Jazz who are tanking now, the Blazers who are tanking now, and could be playing some teams with settled seeding by the end of the season. But winning against either the Jazz or the Blazers, the Spurs, would be huge for the Pacers. And we'll, this will all become more clear basically every day. Next week, Standings Watch will be about all these teams again, except the Pacers will likely be locked out of the play-in tournament. At that point, that was a lot of babbling. I hope it all made sense. If you have questions, I'm on Twitter at TEastNBA. And this podcast is at Locked on Pacers. Tomorrow, we'll have a guest talking about a couple of things I find interesting this late in the season. The O'Shea brissett jordan War minutes. What do the Pacers look like with two wings on the floor? Their identity and what it means for their offseason and free agency as well as looking at the Bucks ahead of their game on Wednesday. So lots of fun stuff coming. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have a fantastic day. We'll see you tomorrow.